This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is Job chapter 1, verse 1, and then skipping ahead to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It's the lectionary reading for the 19th Sunday after the Pentecost, also known as Proper 22 in the Year B cycle of the lectionary, and it happens to be the reading for October 3, 2021. The book of Job is a complex book, and it is filled, first of all, with many questions, and we wish for answers. Job is the oldest story in the Bible. It existed as a fable long before a single word of scripture was ever written. We know this to be an old story because the same story, the one we have here in Job, has variants in other cultures that date back much further than any of the written accounts we have in the other books of the Bible. For example, in Babylonian culture, Sumerian culture, Egyptian culture, this story of Job is represented with slightly different characters and slightly different nuances around the ancient world. It's a story that begs some of the most significant questions we ask as human beings. In chapters 1 and 2, and skipping all the way to the end at chapter 42, those are core to the narrative. And if you were to put just those three chapters together, 1, 2, and 42, they're perhaps the original version of the story, with the other chapters in the middle, chapters 3 through 41, maybe being inserted later. It's hard to tell. But in any case, Job represents a very ancient story to us that is designed to help us understand an important truth. Job is about questions and answers. And one of the questions we like to ask as human beings is the question, why? Why is there suffering? Or another question that we like to ask is what? What purpose does suffering serve? I remember teaching on the book of Job a good number of years ago, and I was joined by my dear friend, Rabbi Stuart Altshuler. And Stuart told my United Methodist class something very important about the book of Job, and it is the key passageway when it comes to questions and answers. Dr. Altshuler said this, Job answers no questions. It only helps us ask the best ones. You see, Dr. Altshuler was pointing to the fact that the questions we want Job to answer, well, they've been there for years. Just because we want answers, just as the people that Job in this form was written to wanted answers, doesn't mean that those answers are there. Job is a piece of ancient literature. It's a story that begs us beyond naivete and simplicity. It is not a children's story. It is rich. It is complex. And to be honest, it can be a bit of a mess for us. As we read the book of Job, we might find in these early chapters some interesting narratives and scenes that take place. And some of the interesting characters we find in this story, we read about God, we read about this character called Satan, and the cosmos. 
And before we even get into the narrative of Job, it's important for us to pause for a moment and just take a look at this cast of characters so that we can better understand what's going on in the story. Remember, Job is an ancient story. It's an old story. It is the oldest story in the entire Bible. And in these opening scenes of Job, we find ourselves in an interchange between heaven and earth. You'll notice that the the narrative in chapter 1 and chapter 2 moves between scenes on earth with Job, scenes in heaven with God, then scenes on earth with Job, and back and forth, above and below. So before unpacking what happens in these early verses, we have to address who all these characters are. Well, first of all, we read in this early part of Job about God. And in this part of the story, God is kind of overly humanized. It's anthropomorphized is the technical word. And the image that's conjured here is like a throne room that someone might see anywhere in the ancient world. A throne room where a king would sit on a throne and gather their court of advisors around them to help make decisions and issue judgments. And so in this particular story, God is the regent and is gathering court. And a court of who? Well, this is the mystery of the story. These are apparently some kind of superhuman beings. Who they are is not really important. But one among them is important. And the one among them is called the Satan. Now, Satan is a transliterated word. And here's what that means. It means that how we spell it in English matches the sounds in Hebrew. Satan is not a translation. It's our spelling and our pronunciation of the Hebrew word Satan. This is where we become really confused because our Christian Greek understanding wrongly influences us. When we, when we hear this name Satan, we think of an evil being whose name is Satan and perhaps also called the devil. Friends, in this story, we must set aside these assumptions that came along centuries after the story of Job ever existed. The correct way to refer to Satan in this story is always with the definite article, the Satan, not just Satan, the Satan. That is the correct way. And some Bible translations, like the Common English Bible, don't even use the word Satan to try to avoid the confusion in the story. It uses this word, the adversary or the accuser. And this Satan or the Satan is one of these superhuman beings. And again, the word Satan or Satan in Hebrew means accuser or prosecutor. So the way it's translated in the Common English Bible is actually more of a translation of the word Satan rather than a transliteration of it. And in the story, God boasts about Job, and the Satan's job is to question if that boasting is valid. Take note, in the entire book of Job, Job never addresses the Satan or even attributes his own suffering to the Satan. In Job, the Satan is asking if the only reason Job is so perfect is because he is prosperous. And here's the key passageway about this idea of God, the Satan, and the cosmos. Material wealth and health are not signs of blessings. This, this is exactly what God and the Satan are testing in the story. 
God is not depicted in this story as Job's enemy. The Satan is not depicted as Job's enemy in the story. The Satan levels a true question, and it's a question we actually all carry. Is it, do we treat God like some kind of genie or a magician? Are we just in a cause and effect relationship with God so that if we do good, God gives us good things, and if we do bad, God gives us bad things? Is this all just a divine game, a, a transaction of sorts? This is what Job is trying to help us unpack. Material wealth and health are not signs of blessing. This is exactly what God and the Satan are testing in this story. So we turn now to the questions of Job. Remember what Rabbi Altshuler taught me is that Job doesn't provide any answers. It only helps us ask the best questions. Well, what are those questions? Well, when we're focused on the question of why, and I think wrongly so, we're focused on something that's very important in Job, and it's called the doctrine of retribution. And it's something, it goes something like this. If someone leads a good and obedient life, they are rewarded. And if someone leads an evil and malicious life, they are punished. Thus, we can tell if someone is good or not based on their level of reward. So if you're powerful or wealthy or healthy, you've obviously been blessed by God because you've lived a good life. And if you possess only some of those things or none of those things, well, then you must be punished or being punished for something you've done. See, the book of Job is trying to get to the very heart of this fallacy. Does perfection lead to prosperity? You, you see, Job in the story is depicted as so unrealistically perfect. It's absolutely ludicrous the way the story frames Job. He has seven sons and three daughters for a total of 10 children. Biblical numerology is rich. The number seven is oftentimes represented as the number of perfection. The number of three is also a significant number in the Bible. The number 10 is also a significant number. So the way Job's family is composed is literally the perfect family. And then the numbers of the, of the camels, the sheep he has, the land he possesses, this is too good to be true. And in some ways, the way the story of Job frames Job's life before his suffering is designed to make it so idyllic and perfect that no one actually has that kind of life. It's almost like a fantasy, if you will. As we hear this ridiculous story about this ridiculously perfect man named Job, of course, the question is, it's too good to be true. That is the point. If you are as perfect as perfect gets, how could you possibly suffer? Remember, all those why questions, why is there suffering? Why am I suffering? Job forces us to embrace a more realistic wisdom, the kind of wisdom that's found in Ecclesiastes, not the bubblegum and candy wisdom we find in the book of Proverbs oftentimes, but this deeper, at even times almost darker wisdom we find like in Ecclesiastes and here in Job. If we all die and take nothing with us, how can possessions be a sign of blessing? How can my health even be a sign of blessing? You, you see, if all these things are transient, why would God give them to me and then take them away from me? 
upon my death? Here's the key passageway about these questions. You see, the best question isn't why am I suffering or what does my suffering mean? The best question is how shall I live in the midst of suffering? Job makes it clear that even unicorns, rainbows, puppies, the innocent, and the pure suffer. Asking why is of no value because it begs a cause and effect assumption. How to live in suffering is vastly more valuable, a question to ask. Will Job address it? Can we let go of why long enough to hear it? Perhaps you've heard of the patience of Job before. We use it as an idiom within English-speaking cultures. I think it's much more effective to render this as the persistence of Job. In our story, there's round one. In round one, there's this exchange between God and the Satan about why Job is so obedient and so perfect. And the Satan says it's because he has all these blessings and possessions and things. So he insists if we took all those things away from Job, where would he be? So in round one, Job loses his children. They all die. He loses his livestock, his land. He's invaded by foreign armies. And note in chapter one, the rolling occurrence, as all of these calamities come upon him, it, it says, while the messenger was still speaking, in other words, while he was receiving this bad news, another messenger came and delivered more bad news. This is a calamity we've all experienced in our life, isn't it? A cascading set of events unfold just as unrealistically as all of Job's blessings, so-called blessings, came upon him. Job's response in this first round is to fall to the ground. Now, falling to the ground is not a sign of his uh, being grief-stricken. Falling to the ground is an idiom in Hebrew. It means he assumed a posture of prayer. You see, his cause is with God, no one else. He bears all the signs of grieving. He tears his garments. He does everything according to the ritual and custom of his day. His response is not some kind of Pollyanna simplicity. It is authentic. It is raw. It is real. It is deep. It is painful. And it's directed towards God. He comes to the conclusion near the end of chapter 1 that he says, I came from my mother's womb and I will return to it. He's, he's making a reference that the earth in some ways is his mother's womb. He's going to return to the, to the dust. See, he's already beginning to allude to this darker wisdom that's here, that wealth and power and status do not stay with us after death. So why do we cling so much to them? And what Job is affirming is that these things, these things are meaningless when it comes to addressing the question of why. In round two, and there's another exchange between God and the Satan that, well, Job is still unwilling to curse God and die uh, because he's, you know, still has his physical health and well-being. And, and so in round two, Job breaks out and boils all over his body. I mean, it's again, it's kind of a, a hyperbolic or an exaggerated scene where Job loses all of his health and well-being. And so his wife in this story makes an appearance for the first time, and, and she represents somewhat of a foil here, simply telling him, why don't you just curse God and die? 
You see, Job will certainly curse many things in the coming chapters, but one thing he won't do is curse God. Job says, even in response to his wife's prodding, he says, will will we receive good from God, but not also receive bad? Do you see it? He's still framed in the wrong question, that good comes from God and bad comes from God. He's, He's seeing things through this lens of cause and effect, and it's this lens that the book is trying to invite us out of to perhaps ask a deeper and more informed question. And the key passageway here is this. Patience and persistence in suffering do not reject the reality of suffering. Job directs every question, every passion, every accusation, and every energy to God, even in the midst of his pain. Even his own rage points to God. That is is the persistence, knowing that God alone, that God alone is his hope. And so he pours out all of his anguish, all of his rage, all of his frustration, and he directs it toward God. He doesn't direct it toward himself in terms of self-pity. He doesn't direct it toward his three friends that will eventually come. He doesn't even direct it toward his wife. He directs it to God. One can be raw and honest while still being patient and persistent. Part of the answer to what we're going to discover as we look through these next several weeks and experience the story of Job is that Job's suffering deepens and takes him into a very dark place, but even in that place, his eyes are still directed toward God and never, ever deviate. That's it for this week. Many thanks to the Reverend Dr. George Ed Bennett and the great people at the First United Methodist Church of Lodi. They are using passages, this podcast, as part of their sermon series on the book of Job over these few weeks. For all of you at the First UMC in Lodi, I hope you are blessed by passages as you prepare to receive the sermon this coming Sunday. I bid all of you grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.